everyone. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. We're the high school ministry at the church at Rocky Peak, and we'd love for you to join us in person on Saturday nights at 530. For more info about the ministry and upcoming events, find us on Instagram at HSRevolution. We hope you enjoy this time of teaching from God's Word. Hey, what's up, Revolution? Nice to be here with you guys. My name is Tim. I'm the high school pastor here. I'm so excited that you're here. We have a very special day today planned because in a little while, we're going to be joining uh, the main service to go watch baptisms. This weekend, we have six people from Revolution who are getting baptized, which is super cool. Five today and one during the 11 o'clock tomorrow. Um, and so we are super excited to watch uh, as people, man, they declare that Jesus is what their life is all about, that he has saved them uh, from their sin, that he has brought them to to him, that he has uh, washed them clean and risen them to new life. And as they stand up there and get to share just even a little snippet of what God has done in their life, uh, I'm stoked that we get to celebrate that with them. And so before we do that, we're going to jump just briefly into, into God's word, a little bit shorter than we normally would spend. Uh, But we're going to continue on in this series that we're in. So if you guys uh, are set, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump into our time. Uh, Jesus, we thank you just for for your word that you've given us, that you, God, that you you created us, that you made us, that you wanted a relationship with us, and that even when we ran away from you, when we chose to do things our own way, um, that you did everything to come after us, uh, that you've communicated to us, that you've shown us who you are, that you came and lived a life as one of us in order to pay the ultimate price, the price that we couldn't so that we could be connected to you. We pray that we would meet you in your word today and that you would give us a a bigger glimpse uh, of how important, how magnificent you are, Jesus. Uh, In your name, amen. Uh, So today we are continuing this series that we're in called Fulfilled, talking about how Jesus is is greater than uh, all of these these other things that God is doing in the Bible. We we see that Jesus, that when he comes, that he's the the ultimate, the pinnacle, the the be-all, end-all of some of these things that God started to to tease and show off that he was capable of at other points in the Bible. Um, We've looked at how how Adam and Eve are the beginning of the human race, uh, and yet they mess things up. And then Jesus comes, and he's a, he's a restart point for us. Uh, and we, we've continued to talk about some of the other things that God does in the Bible and how Jesus is a, a greater version of that. And, and today, we're going to be looking in the Bible and comparing saviors in the Bible. We're going to look at times that, that God used, the time that God used a, a human being to, to save some people and compare that to how he uses Jesus as the ultimate Savior. And so today we're going to be talking about Joseph. Uh, Joseph in Genesis, Joseph. Joseph and the fancy multicolored coat, Joseph. We're going to talk about his story a little bit, how God uses him, and then compare that to how God uses Jesus in our life. And so today, if you, if you have your Bible with you and you want to open up to Genesis 37, we're going to be reading all of Genesis 37 through chapter 50. Just kidding. That's the whole story of Joseph, but that would take a long time. We would be here for quite a while. But if you want to check out the story of Joseph later, that is exactly where it is. It's on your note sheet there in case you want to check it out. It's a great read. It's a fantastic read with a bunch of ups and downs. Uh, And if you've never heard it before, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you right now because I think it's important for us to get a glimpse of everything. Yeah, hands over there. Uh, I'm going to spoil everything because I think it's important for us to have a sense for, for what God 
does through so much of Joseph's life. If you've ever been in a point in your life where you wondered what the heck is going on, like, God, what are you doing? Why are things so dark, so grim? That The story of Joseph is a really honest telling. If you think about it from Joseph's perspective, right? When you've, if you've grown up hearing the story, if you've seen the play, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you watched uh, the animated movie, if you know the story and you know, the, the, you know it all the way through, it's easy to be like, ah, oh, Joseph, he'll be fine in the end. But if you were Joseph, if you were going through some of the things that he did, you would have no idea what this suffering was all about. So right before this section, we see God meet a man named Abraham and promise to Abraham, if you follow me, then I'm going to make you into a wonderful nation. I'm going to make you, I'm going to take you from just you and your wife who haven't been able to have kids. I'm going to bring you so many offspring that you have a nation. And and Abraham chooses to trust God and his story is all over the map too. It's also a great read. Uh, and, And Abraham's grandson is named Jacob. And Jacob's got a unique story too. He's got this whole feud with his brother that happens. Jacob ends up being renamed Israel at one point in the story, which is where we get the nation of Israel. That's where that name comes from. And Jacob has 12 sons from four different women, two of whom are his wife and two of whom are his like servants. Um, The Bible doesn't sugarcoat what this story was, and it doesn't paint this as if this is like the ultimate way to have a family. In fact, as you can imagine, uh, let's say you and your brothers and sisters had different moms, um, there would be a little bit of tension. In fact, we see when Joseph comes along, Joseph is the only son of Jacob's favorite wife. Um, And that's about as messed up as it sounds. And it it causes a ton of tensions. And the the brothers are not super thrilled with Joseph. He's a little bit kind of the baby of the family. He came along a little bit later. And dad just totally is throwing all sorts of gifts at Joseph, loves Joseph, gives him this special coat that's like multicolored. He just takes care of Joseph way better than he takes care of his other sons. It's clear that Joseph is the favorite and the brothers aren't thrilled with that. One day, Joseph gets sent to go check on his brothers who are tending the flocks, and the brothers decide, their first thought is like, you know what, we should, like, we should kill him. And so they capture him, and they throw him in a pit, and then they talk about it, you're like, you know what, if we're going to get rid of him, we might as well make some money, let's sell him off as a slave. And so they sell him as a slave. They sell their own brother as a slave because of their jealousy, and because their dad could not get his stuff together, they sell off Joseph as a slave, right? Imagine being Joseph. The, the highs of being the favorite in the family to the lows of literally your blood turning on you and selling you off. And so he gets sold into slavery, makes his way slowly, probably tied to the back of a camel uh, to Egypt. He becomes a slave of, of a man who's kind of a, a wealthy guy in Egypt named Potiphar. And he makes it, he's such a good worker and such a hard worker that he makes his way to the top of the hierarchy. And Potiphar's like, you know what? I'm going to put you in charge of everything in my household. When I'm gone, you're going to be like me. To ev- you're going to be able to tell everyone what it is that they want to do. And so Potiphar is out of town one day and Potiphar's wife sees Joseph, and just like Potiphar likes Joseph, so does Potiphar's wife like Joseph. And so she makes a pass at him, and Joseph turns her away, and then he gets, he gets framed for trying to rape her. Like, full on, she like holds onto his, his jacket and basically turns it in later and is like, see, look what he tried to do. That's why I scream, or whatever. And, and he ends up in jail. So he goes right now from favorite son, slavery, top slave, framed for rape in jail. 
in jail for who knows how long, right? Like it's not, he's lucky he wasn't executed. He's in jail. While he's in jail, he becomes the top prisoner. Literally the people running the prison put him in charge of the other prisoners. Now, I feel like that's still like, you have like favorite son up here and then you have maybe like favorite slave up here and like favorite prisoner still maybe down here, but like you're still like, it's like a little bit of an uphill. He meets some guys who are some powerful guys. He, he God empowers him to interpret their dreams and one of them is gonna go back to working for Pharaoh. He was in jail because Pharaoh got upset at him and, and Joseph's like, man, one day you're gonna be back to working with Pharaoh. The other guy was gonna be executed, but that's an aside. Uh, that's the real like bottom of the heap. And and so he's like, hey, when you're back with, remember me. Like when you're back there, please remember that I'm here in prison. Talk to Pharaoh. Tell him that I was falsely accused. Help get me out. And so his friend gets released and forgets about him for who knows how long until Pharaoh has a dream that needs interpreting and, and no one can do it. No one can figure it out. And then one day his buddy's like, I forgot about Joseph. That's right. Hey, I know this guy named Joseph. He goes and he interprets Pharaoh's dream which is all about how there was going to be uh, there was going to be some years where there were plenty of crops and then all of a sudden it was going to nosedive and there was not going to be enough food. Joseph interprets that. Pharaoh loves Joseph so much he puts him second in command of all of Egypt, the most powerful nation. Puts him second in command and puts him in charge of being the one to collect all the food. And so you can imagine, right, the, the ups and downs. Sold into slavery. What is going on? Top slave, falsely accused. What, what is, all he's doing the whole time is trying to be the best he can at following after God. And things keep coming out of nowhere. Left turn, right turn, just constantly nosediving. Best slave, meets some powerful people, totally forgotten. And then there he is, second in charge of the whole nation of Egypt. And they did so well collecting food that during this famine, people are coming from other nations. And they're, they're starving in other places. They're coming to Egypt because they've heard that Egypt has food and they're bringing whatever they can to sell, to barter, to try to buy some grain because they are starving and they want to feed their people. And Joseph's in charge of figuring out those claims and who should show up one day but his brothers, who he hasn't seen since they decided to sell him into slavery. And there they are. And Joseph has the decision of what it is that he's going to do. Is he going to punish them? He could very well take them, throw them in prison for the rest of their life. He has that power. He could command that they be executed. No one's going to second guess Pharaoh's second in command. He could do whatever he wants. And so he, he takes a little bit of time to kind of test their character a little bit because now it turns out his mom had had a second son and that youngest son, he has them bring that youngest son, that brother that he's never met, and he realizes that his brothers are now willing to lay down, lay down their life for this younger brother, even though obviously dad is still playing the favorites like he was before. Like the brothers, they've had a change of heart. And then Joseph, he reveals himself to them. He takes care of the whole family. He provides food for them. And in a time where God's promise to Abraham to make a, a nation would have been threatened to be wiped out, that that promise wouldn't have happened if this famine, if there hadn't been a solution for that, God used Joseph's ups and downs that happened in order to provide for his family so that God could keep his promise to Israel. God let Joseph's suffering be used so that he could bring something good out of it. Which 
if God showed up and offered you that deal, hey, I'm going to take you through this, this whole journey, all these ups and downs. It's going to get this bad. Prison, slavery, falsely accused, all these things. But don't worry, I'm going to like do something with that. I think most of us would be like, we'd pull back a little bit. And yet it's, it's cool to see exactly what Joseph's response to this is. So you have a section on your note sheet with some fill-ins, and it says this. It says, God used Joseph's suffering for his family's salvation from starvation. God used Joseph's suffering for his family's salvation from starvation. At this point in the Bible, this is not just any old family. This is the family that God is choosing to use, that he's giving a glimpse for. Like, hey, there's hope for the world because of this promise that I'm going to keep to this family. And God uses Joseph to keep that promise. But this is Joseph's response at the end of the story, at the end of the book of Genesis, right? Genesis opens with Adam and Eve, and everything breaks into chaos by chapter 3. And at the end of that book, we get this little glimpse. And I like the way that the ESV version puts it a little bit. So here it is, chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph talking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's suffering brought salvation. In this case, salvation from being starved, from dying from starvation. His forgiveness to his brothers for what evil they had truly meant brought healing for that relationship and for that family and helped restore God's promise. It was both an evil plan put in place by people and also a good plan put in place by God. And God's goodness outshined the evil that they were trying to have happen. God's goodness that he was planning behind the scenes outshadowed and blew out of the water what was planned otherwise. And so how do we compare this to Jesus? How does Joseph's story compare to Jesus? How is Jesus greater? The next fill-in on your notes is this, that God planned Jesus' suffering for our salvation from wrath. God planned Jesus' suffering for our salvation from wrath. Now, wrath is a scary word. If you asked me how I was doing today, and I answered, wrathful, you'd probably back up and like be like, whoa, okay, I don't know what Tim is planning. Uh, it would be a little free. Wrath is something that we are usually scared because we think of someone who's, who's out of control angry. But the, the picture that we get of God's wrath in the Bible is not when God is out of control. God doesn't lose control, but it's of a God who is perfect and perfectly good, who made a creation, who sees evil in his creation, and it's his desire to remove that evil. That God's wrath is his coming and bringing to, to take evil out of his creation. The problem that we see from the beginning of Genesis is that we are on the wrong side of that equation. Most of us would say, yes, please, God, take, e take the evil away. I don't want any more evil. I don't want evil this close to me. I don't want evil over there. I don't want evil on the other side of the world. Take the evil away. And yet what we miss is that before coming to Jesus, we are a part of the problem. 
all of us that we make choices on our own, sometimes that we think are good, that are really bringing evil into God's good creation. And so what, what we deserve, the Bible makes very clear, is to, to be a part of what's removed instead of part of what gets to stay. And yet God planned a way for that to be different. There's a really famous chapter in Isaiah where Isaiah gets a glimpse of how God is going to solve this problem. It's Isaiah 53. And I, I want us to just look at this because this chapter is so clearly about Jesus and what it is that he would come to do and gives us a glimpse kind of behind the curtain of what's going on in the story of the Bible when Jesus comes. Isaiah 53, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so he's going to start describing this person, this arm of the Lord, someone used by God to do something. It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot, right? That's like a little, like a little tree starting to grow out. Uh, like a root out of the dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There are people described in the Bible as really good looking sometimes. King Saul is described as being like tall and manly. Uh, King David is described as like being like, uses the word ruddy a lot of times in the English version, which I'm always like, I've got to Google that to see what that, but it's like the sense that he's got like this red hair and he's like a good looking guy. And yet when, it, when the Bible describes Jesus, there's nothing about him that's like, man, people saw Jesus and they were like, I'm gonna follow that guy. Instead, there wasn't anything about his appearance that drew us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sin, for our evil. He was crushed for our iniquities, the ways that we had rejected God. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, which if you've ever had a sheep, which I'm sure some of us in this room have, if you, sheep are constantly going their own way. They're doing their own thing. They're like they're notoriously difficult. They're so dumb. They're just hard to like wrangle. That's why there are sheep dogs because you need a smart animal to keep the dumb animals like in line. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was God's will, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Already we get hope 
that for this coming one who would suffer for all of us, that that suffering wouldn't be the end of the story. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So there's this chapter of the Bible that looks forward to tell us that there's going to be coming one who is going to have to suffer because of what we did. That someone who hasn't done anything is going to have to come and God is going to choose this person to suffer on our behalf and he's going to be despised, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be thought of as lowly and he's going to be pierced and die because of what we've done. And what we see is that all through the story of Jesus, it maps on perfectly to what's going on here. Even the idea at the end of that chapter that post-suffering and death that he would see life. We see that in who Jesus would come and would be for us. But the amazing thing, and I think one thing that I really want to highlight out of this chapter is that we get even more insight into what's going on here later after we know who Jesus is because we know that Jesus isn't just a human being that God picked out of history to crush with the weight of everything that we've done. That instead it was God himself who stepped into the story, became one of us, and was willing to suffer when he didn't deserve it. And so when it says here, in verse 10, that it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, then we know it's, it's Jesus' plan. It was Jesus' will to step into the story to take what you and I have done. He wanted to come and pay for your sin, for your wrongdoing, and for mine. And so he wasn't just picked, he didn't hang his head, he wasn't sad about it, he wasn't disappointed about it. He came willingly because that was the plan, to show that he cares about you that much. His suffering brought us salvation. In this case now, we get to be a part of his righteousness. So we get to move sides of the equation. We don't have to be on the side of the equation that needs to be pulled out of God's good creation. That now he has painted us with his goodness. And no longer are we defined by the mistakes and the choices that we've made. His forgiveness brings healing to our relationship with God. And that trickles down into our relationship with each other. That because now we've been forgiven, it's easier for us to forgive each other and to enjoy deeper relationships where we don't have to just hold on to friendships just until someone does something wrong. That now we're able to continue relationships the way that God has chosen to revive our relationship with him. And it was both an evil plan from people and from Satan and yet also God's good plan. And that the goodness was far greater than the evil. And so two things to kind of wrap up. The first one is this, is that Jesus was willing to suffer for you. Jesus was willing to suffer for you. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. No one had to twist his arm. No one dragged him through the process. He chose from the beginning of time, knowing what you would do, to come and lay his life down for you. And not quickly, but slowly. 33 years as a human being. 
tortured, whipped, hung on a cross, suffocating to death for you and for me. He knew that that was the plan. And he chose to love you that way, knowing everything about you. And the last thing I want to ask is just one question for us to chew on, to ponder as we get ready in a moment to go join baptisms and watch as people declare that they're following Jesus with their life. That to follow Jesus oftentimes means that we're going to have to not do everything that we want to do. And so the question is this is, the question is, I close my notes, there we go. <laughs> what will you surrender for him? A lot of times surrendering something to Jesus Choosing to go his way and not our own way? A lot of times that feels like suffering. Because we have to give up something that we're holding on to that we're pretty sure is good. We're pretty sure that this is bringing me some sort of relief from the pain. This is bringing me some sort of joy. This is bringing me some sort of good. This is bringing me some sort of distraction. And we want to hold on to it. And we know there's going to be some suffering if we have to let it go. But just like through Joseph's suffering and through Jesus' suffering, that when we choose to surrender something to Jesus, God has a greater good on the other side of that for us. Whether it's giving up a relationship and choosing to turn to him, whether it's giving up a substance and choosing to turn from him, whether it's giving up uh, a self-righteousness and an attitude towards other people and choosing to turn to him, that he has something better for us on the other side of that than whatever it is that we're holding on to that we feel like he would want us to surrender to him. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Then the announcement team is going to come up with a couple of announcements. I'm going to go rush over to baptisms to make sure that I'm there on time, but you guys will be there on time too. And I will see you guys over there in just a few minutes. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us, that you were willing to come and to die on our behalf, that you took, you took my sin on your shoulders. And as much as, as more than anyone else in the room, I know what I've done, you know what I've done even more, that you know the things I will do, and, and you've paid for that. And you did that willingly. Your arm wasn't twisted into it. I didn't even have to, I didn't know enough to beg for it. That you came to do it because you loved us, that you were willing to suffer so you could bring us salvation. And God, would we choose as your people to willingly surrender our lives to such a good and loving God. In Jesus' name, amen.